Well, good morning again. And again, we're so glad to have you with us today at River Oaks. This is the weekend uh, on which we celebrate Veterans Day. And I'd like to take just a moment now to recognize those of you among us who are veterans. If you are a veteran, would you please stand at this time and let us thank you for your service to our nation? Would you stand if you're a veteran, please? Would you join me in thanking all these? Thank you so, thank you so very much for your service to our nation. We're continuing today our study of the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. If you've not picked up one of the study guides that we're using for small groups, they can also be used for individual study, and I believe we still have some of those remaining at our resource center. Uh, David Holcomb, Pastor David Holcomb, and also Jonathan Bost, our uh, discipleship intern this past summer, appropriately titled the study, United, United, Life in the Body of Christ. I say it's an appropriate title because the Apostle Paul begins the book in chapter 1 with an appeal to the church, uh, whereby he writes, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So in writing this lengthy letter, 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, he's calling the church to unity over issues that were dividing them. 1 Corinthians is an extremely practical book. And the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the church at Corinth, was in part, at least, responding to questions that they had sent to him. I say that because we see at the because of what we see at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 where he writes now concerning the matters about which you wrote you notice he goes on in that chapter to say now concerning the betrothed and then when we get to chapter 8 our passage today he begins the chapter now concerning food offered to idols he is responding to issues that he knew were of significance in the early church, issues about which the church had questions and may well have been dividing the church. Now, chapter 8 begins with an issue, if we'll go back to that slide for a moment where we were, chapter 8 begins with an issue that's not um, a, a common issue for us in our culture, food offered to idols. Whether or not to eat food that had been offered in sacrifice to idols was a very big issue in Paul's time. And you read in the New Testament letters a number of places where the Apostle Paul writes about the issue of food. Romans chapter 14 is a lengthy chapter dealing with whether or not Christians should eat meat. 1 Corinthians 8 is talking specifically about meat that's been offered in sacrifice to idols. He takes it up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It was a significant issue for them. If you've read the Old Testament, you may recall that often sacrifices were often to the, offered to the Lord of meat or even of grain. Afterwards, these sacrifices would then often be eaten by the priests or even by uh, the people at large. In fact, in two chapters from now in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul will write these words, Consider the people of Israel 
are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So it was not uncommon for believers in the Lord to eat the food that had been offered in sacrifice, that it not be wasted. But similarly, idol worship in the Apostle Paul's time often utilized food, meat being sacrificed to these idols, and then the food was later eaten. And this was a big question in Paul's time. Could you eat food that was offered in sacrifice to an idol? It's a, it's a bit complicated when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then he picks the topic up again in the latter half of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it seems that the Apostle Paul was dealing with three issues, three different situations related to food offered to idols. And uh, the first is this, as we look at these three issues faced by the Corinthians, the first was eating food offered to idols actually in an idol's temple. Note what he writes in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge... Eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now, what's Paul talking about here? Eating food in an idol's temple. Gordon Fee, in his very good commentary on 1 Corinthians, I think it's one of the best commentaries on this book, um, writes this. For the most part, the Gentiles who had become believers in Corinth had probably attended such meals all their lives. This was the basic restaurant in antiquity. There were lots of idols worshipped in Corinth and a number of temples for these idols. Food, meat was offered and sacrificed to these idols. And so apparently there would be a room much like a dining area at the temple, the idol's temple, where people could go and eat. And according to scholar Gordon Fee, this is very common, much like a restaurant in our day. You could go and eat food in an idol's temple. You might say, hey, we're going to celebrate your birthday. Let's go, go meet at the temple of this idol and have, have, a, have a big meal there. But Paul seems to be warning that eating in the idol's temple is too close an association with idolatry. And if someone who doesn't understand that a Christian can eat whatever they want to eat if they give thanks to God sees you doing that, you could harm their conscience. So this was one issue, one situation being, being faced, eating food in an idol's temple. Situation number two, the next one, and he'll touch on this in chapter 10, eating food that was sold in a meat market outside the idol's temple. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul picks up the theme again and says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, you, can, you, you don't have to worry when you're buying this meat that's hanging there in the meat market whether it was offered in sacrifice to an idol or not. You can eat whatever is sold there without raising a question of conscience for, quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, he's quoting Psalm 24 and verse 1. And what he's essentially saying is that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. The beef 
or the chicken or whatever you're, you're looking at, ultimately it's from God. You can give thanks and you can eat it. Now, if the dining area in the idol's temple was like a, a restaurant in ancient times, the meat market outside the temple might be thought of as, a, as an ancient grocery store, meat market. All these sacrifices that were offered were later sold. And Paul is saying in chapter 10, I believe, that a believer can buy meat there, give God thanks for it without worrying about how it might have been used. Third situation, also picked up in chapter 10. Eating meat from a temple, idol's temple, in the home of an unbeliever. And he writes these words. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That's the same thing he said about buying meat in the market. You can eat it without raising a question on the ground of conscience. But, but, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. So you've been invited to a dinner at the home of a person who's not a believer. They're serving different kinds of meat, chicken, beef, you don't know where it's come from, but there's another guest there, and that person nudges you and says, this beef right here, that's been offered and sacrificed to such and such an idol. And that person's deeply troubled by this. Paul says, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience. I don't mean your conscience. You have knowledge there's only one true God you can give thanks for this and eat it, but for the sake of the weaker brother, do not eat it. So it seems to me that there are three different situations. There's the eating in an idol's temple. There's the eating of meat that's sold in the meat market, presumably outside of the idol's temple. And there's eating meat in the home of a, of a host who invites you to dinner. And someone raises a question about where the the meat has come from, that has been offered in sacrifice to an idol. And all of this, Paul is pointing to Corinthians, pointing the Corinthians to concern for the other person. The other person who doesn't have the degree of knowledge you have, whose conscience is troubled by meat that's been offered in sacrifice to idols. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, Again, it seemed that Paul's responding to an issue, perhaps a question about which they'd written. And at the very beginning of the chapter, some Corinthians seemed to be saying, we've got knowledge about these things, Paul. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Now, when you see these words in quotation marks, it seems to indicate that this is what they were saying to Paul. Paul, we got knowledge, we understand this, uh, we, we understand an idol's nothing, but Paul warns, your knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's good that you've got knowledge, but Paul says, I'm calling you to love now, to love for the weak person, to love for the person who's troubled by the exercise of your rights. Knowledge is okay but love is needed. A key idea in the book of 1 Corinthians, 
whether it's eating food offered to idols or it's the exercise of spiritual gifts, is to seek the upbuilding of others, seek the edification of others, others first, put others first. Love builds up. The greatest love chapter ever read in a wedding is 1 Corinthians 13. It's sandwiched right in this book, and you've heard it read probably many times at, at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not seek its own. Um, love never fails. Right here in 1 Corinthians, love builds up. That's what Paul's calling the early Corinthian believers to. Now, some Corinthians seem to also be saying, an idol has no real existence. Paul, we know that. We know that. Verse 4, he writes, therefore, as to the eating of food I offer to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there's no God but one. He would seem to be reflecting on what they wrote to him. It's good that they understood these things. Paul would agree with that. An idol has no real existence in and of itself. There's no God but one true and living God. Paul would say true, but not all people have this certainty. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols. That is, they used to go to the idol's temple and worship the idol with offerings of food and then eat that food in participation there. Some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. The main point here is not about food. It's not even about idols. It's about putting the weaker believer first. It's about putting others first. It's about love that builds up over the exercise of your own liberties or your own rights. Now, with this background, let's, let's take a look at what I, I think are some of the main points in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Number one, we should be sure that our knowledge of God that is our theology, does not make us puffed up or condescending toward others. This is an important point in this chapter to take hold of. Again, the chapter begins with these words. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us, all of us possess knowledge, but Paul says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he says one of the most important things I think we find in this chapter. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now think about that for a moment. True knowledge is a very good thing. But we must always be careful as we gain knowledge, even good, true theological knowledge, that it does not make us proud. I can remember... Years ago, when I began taking courses in seminary and working on a Master of Divinity, at that point I had studied the Bible a lot and, and taught a Bible study, but all of a sudden I was studying things like theology and church history and feeling like, wow, I'm learning, understanding some things that, that the average person doesn't know. 
And I was buying a lot of books and accumulating all these books on my bookshelf at home, and I was getting these big, thick, hardback books on church history and theology and stuff like that. And one, one day I walked into my little office at home, and I was just looking at all those books, and I thought, wow, that looks pretty impressive. If somebody saw that, they'd think you, you know some stuff. And if I recall this correctly, a verse came to my mind. And it was the verse on the screen that said, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And I wrote that on an index card and folded it up and put it on my bookshelf and I left it there for years as I went through seminary. Because I realized no matter how much theological knowledge we might get, God says, you know nothing yet, as you ought to know. Our knowledge is just a drop in the infinite ocean of the knowledge of God. It seems to me that some people who get a whole lot of theological knowledge become somewhat like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who look down on others. And we're condescending toward others. I've known a few people like that in my years who gained so much theological knowledge that they, they, they just kind of thought they were at several levels above everybody else. It's been very helpful to me over the years, though, to know people who are doing wonderful things for the Lord but haven't had the opportunities for much education. I think of some indigenous ministers, native ministers in different countries of the world, places like Africa, India, other parts of the world. I think of people who couldn't tell you the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, but they are winning far more souls to the Lord Jesus Christ than most theologians I've ever known because they love God. Paul says, if anyone imagines he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. This is a call to humility. It's a call away from arrogance, thinking we know too much just because we've had the benefit. And I'm a believer in education. I encourage people going into ministry to go to seminary but be very careful. Be very careful, because it can make you haughty and condescending and arrogant. Second key issue in 1 Corinthians 8. The key issue in the book is not food, is not even idols. The key issue is how our actions might affect others. We read again, Paul writes, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, quote, an idol has no real existence, and quote, there's no God but one. These are things the Corinthians seem to know. Paul affirms this. He adds to it, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, However, not all possess this knowledge. 
but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul is saying, you've got knowledge and that's good. You know your rights and that's fine, but consider the weak person. Consider how your actions might affect them. This is the key issue, how our actions might affect others. I remember when I first moved to Winston-Salem after I graduated from college. I lived in a little basement apartment in the Ardmore area. And um, I had a, a little, made up a little kind of bookshelf there for a stereo out of cinder blocks and some boards, had a stereo there. And there on the floor, I had a really large collection of record albums. And these were albums that I had uh, bought, been given, acquired in my high school years. And these albums were not Christian albums. They were not only not Christian, they were ungodly, some, some of them. And I, I didn't know that until later, but in college when I gave my life to the Lord, I discovered what Christian music was and worship music, started listening to this. But there was a whole lot of money invested in those old albums. And so they went with me from dormitory to apartment to my basement apartment in Winston-Salem. And uh, I think I had in mind at some point I'll, I'll sell them all. There's a lot of money in those. Well, I had a Bible study at my apartment for young guys, a bunch of single guys in our 20s. And, and sometimes we'd have guys just show up I'd never even met before at that little basement apartment. And one night there was a young man there. Uh, I'd never met. Uh, someone had invited and came to find out he was a brand new believer in Jesus. And we were standing around talking, and he was looking through these record albums of mine and began to question them. And I said, oh, I don't listen to those anymore. Those are for, from a long time ago, but they're, they're, they're probably worth a lot of money, and I figure I'll probably sell them, get some money out of them. And he stood there with kind of a confused look on his face. And he said, my pastor told me you can't get good out of a bad thing. <laughs> well, that was the end of those record albums. <laughs> they were gone the next day. I didn't sell them either, by the way. They were, they were destroyed. I have had some regrets when I consider recently what they might have been worth, I, some of them in particular. Nevertheless, how does what we do affect the weak person? That's the key. Finally, love causes us to put the interest of others before the exercise of our own rights. Paul writes again in chapter 8 at the end of the chapter in some very, very strong words here to the Corinthians who are dividing because of insistence on their rights with disregard for the weaker believer. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Wow. 
Paul's using strong language here to impress upon them exactly what they're doing when they're wounding the conscience of a weak believer. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Wow! Using even stronger words now. You sin against a weak believer. You sin against the Lord Himself. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul adds to this in 1 Corinthians 10 where he picks up the subject again. All things are lawful, true, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, true, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. That's the principle. That's the principle. Food offered in sacrifice to idols is not such a relevant issue in, in, in our culture today, is it? I'd say it's not relevant much at all. But there are issues in our culture. It could be very relevant. One of those that comes to mind first, I think, to, to me is alcohol. Um, the views of Christians on alcohol uh, vary quite a lot. And I've noticed that they vary a lot depending on culture and country where you live. There's some <clears throat> countries in the world where Christians, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't be seen near a glass of alcohol and others. And I can remember uh, uh, being with some missionaries years ago, going into a restaurant, and my, my surprise, they each ordered a pint. Because their culture, you know, that was just, that was just great. Through history, views have varied dramatically. There are times when Christians felt like to be a Christian, you had to be a total abstainer. And yet, as one writer wrote of John Wesley, John Wesley was uh, completely opposed to drinking tea, from which we got the phrase or the word teetotaler. But this biographer said, However, Wesley was somewhat of an expert on ale. <laughs> well, people view things differently, different times in, in history. What does the Bible teach? Christians disagree. I'll just give you my, very, my own opinion. In my opinion, I don't, I don't buy the argument that Scripture, uh, that, that wine in the Bible was non-alcoholic. Uh, I don't believe that Jesus turned water into grape juice. Um, Paul said, do not be uh, drunk with wine, implying that wine was alcoholic. Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. A little bit, implying that it did contain alcohol. So that's, that's my opinion, and in my opinion... I don't see Scripture forbidding drinking a beer or a glass of wine. I do see Scripture forbidding drunkenness, absolutely, and giving caution about drinking much, especially in places like Proverbs 20 and verse 1. But in my opinion, this is, this is an area where there's liberty. I think there's liberty. That's, that's my opinion on it. But suppose you're out to dinner with your small group, and you're in a restaurant, and you're going to order a, a glass of wine or a beer. you got liberty there. But seated next to you is a new member of your group, 
And you've recently learned, because this person shared his testimony, that he struggles mightily with alcoholism. He's been free of alcohol for three months now, and it's a big victory, and he struggles mightily. So what are you going to do? You're going to exercise your liberty because you're okay drinking with disregard to him? Or are you going to be concerned for him? I think that's the principle. Others first. Others first. Put the gospel first. The gospel calls us to follow the example of Jesus. And here's what Paul says about Jesus. And he says to us, as we reflect on the attitude, the mind of Jesus, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Others first. That's the principle. And it's the principle of 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 and the latter half, others first. Have this attitude or this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, Jesus didn't cling to his right in glory as God the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human for form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus put us first. He didn't cling to his rights. He put us weak, sinful humans first. He bore our judgment. He paid our price. He paid our debt. He shed his blood to purchase our salvation so that through our faith in him we be brought to God and deemed righteous. And Paul is saying, have this mind. The gospel calls us to others' first humility in all our relationships, whether it be marriage, work, school. I, I think the others' first humility is really essential to have a healthy Christian marriage. Difficult though it is. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we may say, you mean I have to consider my wife more significant than myself? Yes. Wives may say, you mean I've got to put my husband's interest above my own? Yes. The problem Paul was addressing at Corinth was not one of food or idols or even necessarily rights, but a problem of attitude. And he's calling the church and he's calling us to an other's first attitude. So just two questions by way of personal application as we draw to a close. First is this, in my relationships, if you're married, your marriage, in your home, in the church, in school, if you're in school, am I more focused on my rights or the upbuilding of others? Now, someone may say, well, Paul's only talking about other Christians. Yeah, but in chapter 9, he's going to be talking about giving up our rights for the sake of unbelievers so we can reach unbelievers. This others-first approach. 
What if we Christians were known for our others' first attitudes at, at work, at school? And then secondly, what I think and speak differently about Christians with different views from mine, if I considered them as persons for whom Christ died, when Paul refers to weaker believers in verse 11, he writes again, by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul refers to them as weak, but he refers to them as brothers, people for whom Christ died, people with different views, people with less understanding than we have. Would it be less condemning of their opinions, of their views, of their lack of theological understanding? If I thought of them as precious people for whom Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, and if I realized that sinning against them was sinning against Christ, might I not be quite so condescending or judgmental toward them? Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your holy word. May your word wash us. May your word build us. May your word equip us for good works of righteousness and direct us to be more like our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his great name. Amen.